0: Jenna. Hello everyone. Um, thank you for joining our program today. I hope you're all safe. My name is Janet Moreno. I'm an immigration attorney and a member of the immigration Section serving committee at the BBA. I'm also the president of MAHA. Uh, before we start, I would like to thank the BBA for hosting the event and MAHA for co-sponsoring the event. Um, so welcome everyone. Today we have four amazing speakers that will share their expertise with all of us. Um, I'm going to give you a quick uh, introduction of all of them even though you have their bios so you can look in more detail as to their background and expertise. First, we have attorney Lisa Wimber. It's a senior, she's a senior immigration attorney at the Noble Center for Justice and Healing. She has experience representing victims of human trafficking and sexual and um, asylum seekers in sexual orientation and gender identity, women in gender-based and, gender and political-based games. We also have Melanie Zafiro, she's an immigration attorney and the owner of the law office of Melanie Zafiro located in Norwood, Massachusetts. She specializes in asylum, removal defense, BAWA, special juvenile status and U visas, among other areas. We also have Dr. Janice Colton, she's a licensed psychologist with experience conducting forensic evaluations. She received training by physicians for human rights on completed evaluations and has experience evaluating victims of torture, mental and physical abuse. We also have Dr. Lucy Candiff. She's a family physician. She has conducted medical asylum evaluations since 2000. She has wide experience in evaluations incorporating the psychological element and has trained other family physicians in conducting asylum evaluations. Um, so welcome all of you and we really appreciate your time and disposition for, to present these topics today. We're going to get started with the first topic. Um, We have Introduction to Asylum and um, Attorney Lisa will explain what kind of cases benefit from forensic evaluations as well as tips on working with forensic evaluators. So Lisa, welcome and you you can start your presentation. Uh, Attorney Lisa, if you could uh, unmute your microphone.
1: Thank you so much. Sorry. Um, so I'm not going to do a whole background on asylum law, because that could take up my whole eight minutes. Um, I'll just do a brief overview, assuming you all know what asylum law is, and I'm really going to focus on the forensic evaluations. Um, I have been made aware this morning that there's also non-lawyers on this call, so I will try not to make it too legalistic. Um, and. Um, I'll go from there. So as you all know that um, people seeking protection in the United States um, because they have suffered persecution based on their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion can seek asylum in the United States. If they have a well-founded fear of persecution um, based on their past persecution, their well-founded fear of future persecution. Our forensic evaluations are designed to help prove that um, A person has suffered past persecution and that they have a well-founded fear of future persecution. We are also looking for help proving the credibility of our our cases. Our clients' cases basically come down to um, whether a adjudicator finds them credible or not. And often um, people, almost always, people flee without evidence to prove their case. So your role in these cases is to help us prove that they were actually persecuted and that they do have a well-founded fear of persecution. There are two types of evaluations, um, forensic evaluations. Um, I'm not going to go into expert evaluations here for country conditions. This is just both focused on forensic evaluations. Um, there's mental health evaluations and there's medical evaluations. Um, the psychological evaluations are very relevant to proving um, our cases for our clients um, Psychological profile and our medical evaluations can often prove that they did suffer the physical harm that they claim that they suffered. Um, The evaluations are done um, based on um, an interview with the client and a medical exam or a psychological exam. It's important to know that it doesn't have to be a psychologist or a doctor that do these evaluations. It can be anybody who has expertise um, and is trained to do evaluations. So some some, um, evaluators that people might not think of to ask um, other than doctors are nurses, physicians assistants, nurse practitioners, medical specialists um, in mental health evaluations. Social workers can also do them, psychiatrists, specialists, um, anybody who has the requisite um, expertise. The court considers someone an expert if they have the knowledge, skill, expertise, training or education um, that can assist the adjudicator in. in assessing the claim. That's based loosely on the Federal Rules of Evidence, um, Rule rule 702, which you've probably heard that um, if you're an attorney that the Federal Rules of Evidence don't really apply in immigration court, but they do do serve as guidance, and that's the guidance that the adjudicator will go by. They will consider um, the person's um, relevant qualifications and reliability. That will be demonstrated by um, putting, you have to, you're required to put your CV or resume in. um, And in court, you may be asked questions about your expertise to qualify you as as an expert. Um, The purpose of the evaluations is to demonstrate the consequences of the persecution or the trauma that that the person suffered. They are particularly helpful in cases of survivors of torture, survivors of physical abuse, survivors of psychological torture, and survivors of traumatic events. Um, Things that people might not normally think of that that evaluations are helpful to prove are um, psychological effects of witnessing traumatic events, psychological effects of the loss of of loved ones, the psychological effects of um, physical or mental harm to one's loved ones, and then also people who have suffered um, traumatic events, they often um, don't present to the court or the adjudicator as, as well as they might otherwise. So uh, evaluations, um, both medical and psychological are helpful in um, explaining if people have memory issues, explaining inconsistent or confusing testimony, explaining um, why they might have said something that um, to an immigration official that doesn't, makes sense or that's inaccurate, um, explaining that gaps in the person's timeline, explaining behaviors um, caused by trauma that a judge or an asylum officer might not understand, um, explaining their fear of future persecution, um, behavioral and mental complications caused by traumatic events. Um, One that's particularly important is sometimes they have difficulty recalling dates and details and um, both types of evaluations can, help explain why that might be. Um, Sometimes people have a hard time providing a consistent linear narrative and the evaluations can help explain that. Difficulty recalling details. Sometimes they may forget an event altogether or they may um, get an event out of order. So that can help be explained. And then a really important one is, sometimes they might not have an effect or emotional um, presentation that an adjudicator might expect them to have given what they have suffered. And so a evaluator can explain why that might be. And then every case is different. So there might be other mental health or medical effects that an evaluator can can explain um, to the adjudicator. Um, They are the experts and we are the lawyers. And so they have a lot of understanding in their fields that that we don't have and that the adjudicators um, in these cases don't don't have. So it's a really critical part of an asylum case. The other time it's extremely um, necessary um, is if someone has missed their one year deadline to apply for asylum, they have to prove that they missed it because they experienced extraordinary circumstances or changed circumstances. And usually we use the mental health and medical evaluators to explain why they um, missed the one year deadline because of extraordinary circumstances, which is often that they've suffered PTSD. Depression, a medical event that prevented them from applying, um, because in order to be eligible for asylum, you have to prove that you had a valid a, a reason to to miss that one-year deadline. And the other thing that's useful um, in those cases is that you also have to show you applied within a reasonable time of missing the one-year deadline, which could, which generally is expected to be about six months, but someone could miss the one-year deadline by years because of all the things that they they suffered, and that's when the um, The evaluators are just critical in explaining that in those cases, um, why they were medically or psychologically unable to file. Um, So in the the asylum cases, affirmative asylum cases, which are administrative hearings, the evaluator submits their CV and a written evaluation. They are not called to testify in affirmative asylum um, interviews. In court, they sometimes are asked to testify, and sometimes the court just rests on what they what they um, what they have submitted in writing. Um, The in the the court in the court. Well, actually, I'll get to that later. Um, the the um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. So. In, in, in court, you have to be prepared. you have to be prepared to testify, and they have to be available. They are not always asked, and as, as a matter of fact, in my experience, they are rarely asked to actually testify, but you always have to prepare them um, to testify. And, and for tips on working with forensic evaluators, particularly in court, where they might be expected to testify, is that they should always be prepared to testify. They may be an expert in their particular field but they are not experts in testifying and most people have never been in a courtroom before and have never performed that particular function so it's really important to prepare them to know what questions you're going to ask them it's really um, important um, to work with them to let them know in advance of any timelines of any deadlines of any um, any pertinent dates it's also really important to let them know that Things change all the time. You could walk into court that day and not even have the hearing. It could be canceled the night before. The timeline is a can be a moving, moving target. So they should know that when they go, when they go into the case. They should also know that cases that take a very long time, sometimes years. Um, they might be asked to do an update um, right before court because their evaluation might have been, you know, years, years and years before. So that's really important. It's really important to be available to them through the entire process. If they have questions, um, and if they, especially if they're volunteers, if they have questions, or just to be available um, for up for updates. Um, the it's also important to have clear expectations about how the final product will be created, um, because. Um, they're interviewing the client not with you and um you've interviewed them not with the evaluator so sometimes your facts might not match sometimes there might be something important um that they should put in there that we're not oh that they're not aware of sometimes they might put something in there that's inconsistent with what you're putting in in the case so it's it's really important to have a a plan to how you're going to review those drafts um we really shouldn't change anything that's based on their expertise, because that's not our area of expertise, but we are um, in charge of presenting the facts and we have to make sure that the facts are consistent with the rest of rest of the case um, that, that they're presenting. Jim, do, do you know how many more minutes I have? Okay. Um, so, It's important to be prepared for immigration court that they could be questioned on their qualifications, even though they have a degree, even though they've already put in their CV. um, The first part of an immigration hearing is often assessing them for, for qualifying them as an expert, and that's up to the judge whether they're qualified as an expert. And those could be questions like what their work background is, what their educational background is what their specializations are, what their, um, if they've ever published, if they've received any awards or honors, if they've ever testified in immigration court before. Um, so oftentimes the judge will decide somebody is qualified as an expert before they even walk in and before they even testify, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have to still um, prove that they're, they're qualified. Um, the attorney should really prepare them to testify by describing the courtroom, by describing the process, explaining what a direct exam is, what a cross exam is, which is when the trial attorney can ask you questions and explaining how how the process is going to go so that they're not unaware and so they're not thinking about, you know, what the process is when they're trying to think about presenting their their expertise. Um, It's also very important not to ask them um, areas of expertise that are not in their area of expertise um, for example, many, many of our evaluators are very well traveled because if you're interested in asylum law, you often have an international interest, but they shouldn't be commenting on the conditions in the country or, you know, what they saw related to LGBT in the, that person's country of origin um, or anything that's out of their area of expertise. And then, and along those lines, it's very important because sometimes a trial attorney will try and, um, you know, will, will fluster um, people a little bit and it's really, important that they just know their area of expertise is what what they know and that's what they should they should stick to and um and not go out of those those areas. Um, Perfect. Thank you so much,
0: Lisa, for that introduction. Um, we don't have any t- more time left, uh, but we'll continue at the end with your okay. final remarks. Right. Thank you so much. So now we're going to uh, pass it on uh, to Melanie Zafiro, who, who will be sharing with us some updates in immigration law as well as um, case law and technical issues, as well as special issues for forensic violations um, for detained individuals and non-detained. Okay, Melanie, thank you.
2: Thank you, Janet. Hi, everyone. I'm Melanie Shapiro. Um, so as many of you might know, the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security announced last night that they'd be issuing proposed regulations further attacking due process in asylum. And here we have a 161-page dense document on that. Um, But the basic gist of that is that they are going to be issuing this on 6-15 with 30 days of public comment. They'll allow judges to dismiss cases um, in court hearings if the supporting evidence for asylum appears too weak. So they're trying to streamline the process, speed it up, reduce due process access to counsel, and raising the threshold for um, credible fear assessments. And they're proposing new definitions for some um, ways people qualify for asylum, in particular political opinion and particular social groups. And they're trying to create um, asylum and withholding only proceedings. And I fear that those are going to go fast and people will not have much access to counsel. We could spend time on that, but I know we have a very limited period of time for this. Um, just a couple of updates on asylum case law. We had a great case out of the First Circuit recently, De Pena Paniagua v. Barr, which is really good for domestic violence based asylum. Um, the Trump administration has tried to get rid of domestic violence based asylum, so the First Circuit issued a really great opinion clarifying that. And then The other thing now, I just want to shift over to case law specific to forensic evaluations. Um, Applicants for asylum have a right to present evidence of expert testimony, which includes uh, psychological and medical evaluations. And that is from the Indra Haha versus Holder case out of the Second Circuit. Um, In matter of Vitas Casanova, the Board of Immigration Appeals held that expert opinions in removal proceedings may be based upon hearsay evidence, and the expert need not have personal knowledge of the facts underlying those opinions. So the general, the psychological evaluations where there is a description of the facts, those are held to be okay for immigration court in this case. Um, also, courts have recognized that PTSD can affect a person's testimony. As Lisa was explaining um, in more detail about that, about how psychological evaluations can really be helpful to that and to other issues of memory and so forth. It's important that the person who submits the evaluation um, also includes their CV or resume so that they can be qualified as an expert in immigration court. and. Um, Also, the immigration court practice manual states that witnesses may testify telephonically at the discretion of the judge. So a lot of times it's um, burdensome, burdensome for the experts to go to court to testify. So it is good to know that you can file a motion for telephonic appearance of the witness. Um, and as Lisa was saying, it's pretty rare that the judge actually has the psychologist or the evaluator testifying court, but they do have to be ready and available to testify. Um, my experience with the immigration court in Boston is a lot of the judges prefer the Istanbul protocol in, um, evalu- in diagnosing someone with PTSD. Um, I've also had, cases where, for example, with LGBT-based asylum cases, where in those cases, the person has to prove that they're gay or on the LGBT scale or gender non-conforming, and there are certain protocols that are used to to assess that. So having something specific to the issue that you're looking to prove based on that person's um, claim for asylum, for example, if they're claiming to be LGBT, is also very helpful. Um, Some technical issues I've seen um, when I'm working with experts doing these affidavits, um, the evaluations, I have to make sure that the facts of the client's affidavit and the facts presented in the evaluation match up. Uh, A lot of times when an attorney starts working with a client the client might not be totally forthcoming or might not remember everything about what they suffered in their home country. So I often um, wait on submitting my final affidavit until i finish finished the evaluation process with the expert and to make sure everything's consistent. Generally, when I'm working with an expert uh, or an evaluator, uh, they will send me a draft and we'll work together and we'll go over the facts of the case and make sure that everyone is on the same page, including the client. Um, Some of the issues that have come up um, between the affidavit and the evaluation is the facts matching up, especially dates and places, um, the number of incidents described, the number of people in their family, just making sure all of the names are the same. So it's really important that these match up because Um, The asylum adjudicator, whether it's the judge or the officer and opposing counsel, so the attorney for immigration, will look to any sort of discrepancies or inconsistencies and attack that. So not providing any reason to um, give fodder to opposing counsel or the judge or the officer to find any discrepancies is really important. Um, issues in obtaining evidence for detained individuals. So uh, obtaining evaluations, I mean. So when someone is detained, it's a lot harder to get an evaluation done for them. One, because there's a time crunch. Two, because um, they're detained and you have to get access to the detainee. So in my experience, um, you have to find the right person in that particular detention facility who can coordinate the access for the evaluator to your client, and some jails are more or friend- friendlier than other ones. I know that at Bristol County House of Corrections, I really have to go through some hoops, but um, there are some really helpful people there who have been able to get access to um, the client for an evaluation. Um, and then also one of the other issues for evaluating a detained person is privacy. Uh, and, Sometimes it's difficult to get access to a private room and for the person to feel comfortable talking. So that's why it's really important to coordinate beforehand before sending someone in to do an evaluation. Special issues for forensic evaluations for non-detained individuals, um, cost. So a lot of the clients, the asylum seekers, don't have access to funds. So it's really important that you can find someone who either can do it pro bono or low bono for them. And there's some great services in the area to do that. Um, so a lot of medical centers or uh, in the area, such as DMC or Fenway Health, or even Physicians for Human Rights, will do free evaluations for their patients. So just kind of having access or having a list of resources is really important. Um, Another issue is transportation. A lot of the clients don't have um, cars and so being able to find someone that they can meet with um, where they have access to public transportation is important. Another issue is language barriers. So if your client speaks a language, particularly if their dialect is rare, so if you have a client who speaks Spanish but their dialect is, might be really different than the evaluator's dialect, even if they speak Spanish, then that can be a barrier. So it's important that you have someone that they can understand. Um, and then a lot of cultural barriers as well, and shame about discussing what happened to them. So it can take some time for the client to feel comfortable with um, talking about what happened to them. Um, I think that that's it for me for now.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Melanie. So
2: now we're going to move to the second portion of the program, where we're going to
0: cover um, forensic evaluations elements. We're also going to talk about affidavit from clients. What is important to know for an evaluator in working with attorneys? So, um, Dr. Janice,
3: you may may begin. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I want to apologize first if some of this information is redundant or you, if you're an experienced immigration attorney, Um, You already know this, but I know there's uh, some in the audience who do not have that yet. Um, I'm an expert in the field of mental health, and my role as an expert is to educate the judge or the immigration official about the psychological symptoms of trauma and how it might impact the application for asylum. As has just been mentioned, things like inconsistencies in their story. inability to share details, um, their affect, those can all be um, viewed as something that the client is withholding or is not credible. Um, The abuse may not have even been mentioned in the credible fear interview. And so without a full understanding of the emotional impact of trauma, the judge or the immigration official might just assume that the client is not credible. Um, So it's the expert's job to explain how PTSD or depression does impact behavior and to convey the trustworthiness of the victim. Um, Before I talk about uh, my role as the expert evaluator, let me talk about what the lawyer can do. Um, Attorneys can help by, um, first of all, uh, uh, providing the legal basis for asylum, what it is that this particular case is um, resting, uh, you know, the asylum application on, any specific questions that you might have that you would like the expert to address, The client's affidavit. Um, It's important to get that to your expert at least 48 hours in advance. Um, It may not be the final draft, but um, at least then the expert has a chance to understand some of the background and to formulate questions um, and areas in which to explore. Um, It's also good then to be able to pick up on any discrepancies to be able to talk to to the attorney about it after the fact. Any kind of um, collateral information you have, medical records, the declarations of other family members, all of that is helpful. And if a remote evaluation is taking place, and right now all of them are being done remotely, um, if you can get information to the client ahead of time about confidentiality, informed consent, If there's an interpreter involved, get that information to the interpreter. And if there are translations of any of the scales that might be used, that would also be helpful. Um, In addition, many symptoms are triggered by the evaluation when people have to discuss discuss their trauma. Um, The evaluator should address safety concerns, um, but the attorney should have some referral information available for your client. Um, try to make sure there's a support person available, either who take them home from the evaluation, if it's in person or um, at the location where the remote evaluation is taking place. And if it is remote, please check in with your client afterwards, give them a call and and see how they're doing. The components of the evaluation um, should include uh, just a brief um, statement about the clinician's qualifications, being a licensed professional, as has been mentioned, the CV would be attached to the report. Um, Also a brief statement about the referral, who requested it, the time and place and length of the evaluation, whether or not an interpreter was used. Um, And a brief overview of the background information, the history of this client, particularly as it relates to the trauma. As been mentioned, um, there may be a lot of discrepancies. Uh, So in my reports, I try to keep it very general. You know, the client grew up with their family, you know, with their parents and siblings. Um, Not numbers, not names, things like that, that, you know, could at some point be, they could be questioned about and there could be inconsistencies. Um, It also should address the fear and consequences of being denied asylum. Um, ways in which that would directly impact on your client's mental health. The assessment itself um, should start off with just a routine mental status evaluation, um, comments about the um, demeanor grooming orientation to person, place, and time, whether the speech was goal-directed, and any indication of overall impairment in their cognition. That also may tie into their testimony in court later. Um, any physical illnesses, past psychiatric history, um, substance abuse, um, history of suicide or suicidal ideation are also important. Um, there are, as I mentioned, some screening instruments for depression and for PTSD. Judges seem to really like these, um, even though they're not, cannot be relied upon solely to make a diagnosis and would instead guide the clinician for other areas um, to corroborate the information or use their clinical judgment, but judges seem to like having a score. Um, It's like a blood test, either you have PTSD or you don't. It's way more complicated than that, um, but it may be very useful to at least have that included and then a more detailed discussion of PTSD. The two major diagnoses that um, trauma victims seem to to have are depression and or PTSD, and often they have both. Um, PTSD has four major symptom categories. Um, One is re-experiencing, and that's nightmares and flashbacks. One is avoidance, and that is of the memories of the trauma and their thoughts and feelings, um, which can make them have a very difficult time discussing it. Um, negative cognition and mood can be depression, it can be the flat affect that was mentioned, um, and it can show up in just diminished interest in things, um, detachment from others. And the final is arousal. It can be aggressive behavior, reckless behavior, self-destructive. So if, if the person, let's say, has a run-in with the law during the asylum application process, that may be explained by PTSD. Um, The report should touch briefly on which of those um, symptoms the client is experiencing and maybe give an example or two. Observations about trustworthiness, which is also quite important. Um, First of all, the, the report should not use the word credible because as you know, that's a legal conclusion, but instead statements about consistency are important. There is consistency between the psychological symptoms that the client reports and their history. The narrative is consistent. Um, even things like the client um, answered uh, endorsed some of the symptoms of depression or PTSD, but not all. That shows that the client is not just saying, yes, I have that, yes, I have that, but will actually discriminate and say, yes, I have that symptom, and no, I don't have another one. Um, the conclusion and recommendation section, probably the most important, because often judges just skip right to that and don't bother to read the rest of the report. Um, So address the diagnosis and how either granting or denying asylum is going to impact the client's mental health without making a specific recommendation, that is for the judge, but a statement such as it is my professional opinion that the client, if forced to return to their home country, um, would suffer significant um, exacerbation of their psychological symptoms. And it is best not to recommend therapy in the report, even though that is awful, often very useful. If the client is not able to follow through on that recommendation, either they don't have health insurance or can't find a clinician who speaks their language, um, the judge could then use that as their um, unwillingness to comply. Remote evaluations establish, uh, present their own challenges. It's difficult to establish rapport with the client um, the person may feel that somebody else might be overhearing them, um, so both the evaluator and the client, and if there's a, an interpreter, should all find quiet um, places where they won't be interrupted. Um, the interpreter can do a lot to facilitate that, but usually it just takes much longer when there's a third person involved. And as I mentioned earlier, it's very hard to convey warmth during the evaluation to assess safety concerns. But so, as, as their lawyer, please check in with them afterwards and see how they're doing. Thank you.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Janice. So, now we're going to present Dr. Lucy. Um, she's, um, go, go, she's going to focus on forensic evaluations as well, and she's going to share her experience testifying in court as well. Uh, welcome, Dr. Lucy. If you could unmute your microphone, Dr. Lucy. thank
4: you. Um, Perfect. I am trying to share my screen. Are you seeing it? Okay, it says the host has disabled attendee screen sharing. Um, So I guess we need to find Jenna and ask her what the problem is, because I am trying to share it and it's not coming up. But I will start talking while you do that. Okay, Um, so um, I want to talk about the medical evaluation and I first want to mention the Istanbul protocol which was mentioned a little bit earlier, but basically this is a document that was signed by 75 countries. It was devised in uh, the late 90s and was uh, affirmed by those countries and signed by many countries by 1999, published, widely published, um, and it is uh, available through the U.N. High Commission on um, um, Human Rights. Uh, that is a really important document for anybody involved in asylum work to read because it covers both um, uh, the process of doing it, but also um, being respectful the ethics and emotions involved in it and the needs of the client who may be severely traumatized. And this is ranging all the way from things done in a country that has recently been liberated where people have been tortured to individuals here who are coming from somewhere else where those things happen. Um, Just wanna say if I can try it now. There we go, okay. Okay, can you see it? Yes. Okay, good. So um, uh, when I do a history, um, the first thing I'm trying to actually do is to establish rapport with this person who is um, usually extremely anxious, uh, frightened, and very nervous. And so I um, spend a fair amount of time in my first visit with people uh, doing a social history to understand Uh, what their situation was growing up, what was it a village, a city, what their parents did, what ethnic group they may have belonged to, uh, what religion, whether their family was practicing, what kind of schooling they got, um, and so on. And that helps me and often the students that I have with me learning about evaluation to see this person as a human being and not a case. Um, A person, it also gets a person to be talking and as they talk about these things, which are very relatively neutral, unless they've had a lot of trauma involved in to their family, they can usually talk about this without too much difficulty. Um, I also talk about the family of origin, the constellation and their and their marital family, if there is one. Um, Their kids, where their kids are and so on. Um, The second part is a sort of ordinary medical history, what they've had in the way of um, um, any kind of um, uh, medical illnesses, diabetes, hypertension, seizures, and so on. Uh, Almost everybody from Africa, at least from East Africa, has had uh, malaria, but it's important to um, establish that uh, they um, haven't had... Things that are related to trauma, like seizures or hospitalizations from trauma, where you might want to find out or get a hold of the uh, medical documentation. And I've found that lawyers are often able to do that, and sometimes people in their home country can do that. I want to advance this. Let's see. Um, So. These are the questions uh, that I've been asking. What kind of family they come from? Who are they? What is their medical history before the traumatic events? And then there are very specific histories depending on what is going on. So if the client is a GLBT person who has been persecuted in their country for their sexual orientation or identity, then um, it is, becomes important to establish that they, uh, what the history of their identification as a GLBT person is. So I have um, usually start out with um, kind of exploring what they're uh, at what age they began um, uh, identifying uh, feelings for the same sex individual if they're GLBT client for um, choosing partners or getting uh, finding that they're much get much closer to people of the same sex and then carrying that through um, for their first relationships of uh, any kind of intimacy into adolescence and later. I use um, the uh, a screening instrument that two of them actually, which I have given to Janeth to uh, make available to people and an article by the author who invented the Aola Shidlow um, uh, assessment, um, sexual orientation assessment tool And this is very useful because it explores um, the fantasy life before a a person may never have been sexually active and they become sexually active as an adult, but they may have had a very busy fantasy life from much earlier. So there's, it's a very useful tool and um, people, uh, I often find out things that I would not have expected. Um, On the other hand, there are people for whose persecution is based in their political affiliations and I try to explore whether there is a background in the family of origin uh, for a choice to be politically active against the government in the country that they come from. Often their father or grandfather was very active in an anti-dictatorship movement. Um, Typically in Ugandans, a grandfather might have been opposing Idi Amin and this grandson or granddaughter is opposing Museveni. So there is uh, a tradition in that family. This makes the individual not just some crazy who goes to demonstrations, but a person who comes from a family with values based in a viewpoint about human rights and human liberty and a failure of a government to, to offer those rights to the population. Um, so I, sort of making this a credible person, I see this is really part of um, the, the goal here to make their situation who they are make sense uh, third area is um, uh, intimate partner violence, um, clearly understanding the role of violence in their, fa- in their growing up family and their uh, partner. They may have run away from their family of origin because of victimization and then they choose a partner or they get forced to marry a partner who repeats the same situation. Unfortunately, there are many countries where um, uh, violence against women is essentially a fact of life. Uh, something like 17 to 25% of women in uh, East African countries are routinely victimized. So it's not uh, you have to get really beyond the pale to get uh, to to prove a kind of victimization that is going to make it through a um, an asylum um, uh, court because it's not just ordinary routine, if you will, violence against women, but it is uh, usually particularly lethal with uh, threats of violence, threats and attempts at um, killing the woman. And then finally, the other uh, main group of um, uh, the category, which is a somewhat different uh, set of um, skills, has to do with female genital mutilation and um, uh, knowing what the different kinds of female FGM are and knowing how to assess them Uh, getting history of how it occurred, and uh, understanding whether this person is fleeing, preventing it from happening to herself, or she had it done and is fleeing to protect her offspring, or her sisters, uh, and so on. So uh, that involves getting to understand what the typical practices in the country of origin are. Um, So um, for proving mechanisms of injury, you really need to be able to understand the mechanisms and the outcome of trauma. So who did what to whom to what part of the body? Who were the perpetrators? How many, how long, and how often? Now this sounds pretty grim, and it is pretty grim, especially if it's there were many, and there were many parts of the body, and uh, for uh, particularly for, for people who have been Um, put in a so-called safe house in a country in East Africa, where they were tortured by various people for various days. The number of bad things that could happen is really overwhelming, and cannot be done in a short one-shot deal, you know, two hours in done, all set, wipe your hands, we've done it. It takes days, it takes multiple interviews to get through the multiple things that happen to people. And there needs to be attention to the mechanism of injury. So most people, even when they've been um, in these prison type settings, can recall what kinds of weapons, what, whether it was fists, boots, um, metal bars, wooden batons, ropes, and so on. Um, especially important to look at the sites of scar, the sites of persistent pain, or weakness or disability, um, depending on the particular tortures that may have been inflicted, uh, because some of them have very characteristic uh, neurological outcomes. Um, There is sort of the bottom line of humanitarian stuff, which is the lack of access to food, water, and sanitary facilities. So if somebody's left in a room to pee and poop on themselves after they've been raped by multiple people, and they don't get anything to eat and no water, or they get some dirty water, uh, and some, you know, a rice ball that's been rolled through feces. That's pretty disgusting. That is, that is itself, um, you know, against the, uh, all of the international uh, human rights um, uh, standards, and it is an aspect of this situation that should be documented. The tortures, um, you do need to know some stuff about what can happen There, the Istanbul Protocol is very specific and talks about uh, quite a few, but suspension injuries, when people are hung from their feet or their uh, arms, cigarette burns, being cooped up in very small spaces, electric shock treatments. Um, Sometimes there are exposures that are terrifying, hearing screams, seeing others tortured or killed, uh, being exposed to or hung over snakes. Uh, And then having a gun held to your head and um, while the person, you've seen somebody who was just shot and then the gun is held to your head and they keep asking you the same questions over and over again. So that is really heavy duty stuff and it's really important to pay attention to process and safety and flashbacks when you're doing that inquiry. And that inquiry, especially if it was for somebody who underwent multiple episodes, um, has to be has to be done over several different sessions. You can't just rush through it all at once the way I just rushed through it. Um, So I don't know why these are so small, but so the physical exam has to be done with the history in mind about, about what the person said happened to that part of the body. So the nature of the threat and how it was delivered, the weapons or instruments, the mechanisms of injury, Um, And photographic documentation. The question that the medical person is answering is, does your history and physical exam support the history given? And the answers by the standards of the Istanbul Protocol are, is a physical finding not consistent with, consistent with, highly consistent with, typical of, or diagnostic of the kind of injury reported? So many bruises and um, scars are consistent with the story. You know, got hit over the head, got hit on the legs. People have dark discolorations that they live with. Um, that can, that's consistent with blunt trauma. But when you see certain kinds of linear marks or um, very symmetrical marks, then you have to think about what was the mechanism of injury. Um, and I'll show you some pictures in a minute. I um, usually do a detailed and documented psychological evaluation using DSM-5 criteria, which um, uh, Dr. Colton went through, and um, I get people to assess them in terms of frequency and severity of symptoms. Because the PTSD standards ask for a certain number of symptoms in each category, and they have to be of the fre- frequency and severity um, to meet the criteria for the diagnosis, so you can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it doesn't it 's not going to check out, so I think it's important to learn how to do that um, as well as to learn how to do a reasonable uh, depression evaluation. Um, so one question they wanted me to answer is what do medical evaluators want to, uh, want to know from the attorney where the, um, where the attorney's questions lie? Like, did the stuff really happen? Do the scars and other findings match the story? Um, what delayed the escape and the application for asylum? You know, if this person was, especially if they're uh, after a one-year deadline, how does the attorney want to justify late filing so late filing is really a challenge and it's gotten harder and harder, but the kinds of things you need, would need to document include acute mental illness, dissociative states, severe medical illness, traumatic brain injury, or underlying cognitive limitations. And um, I think that it becomes then, it's, uh, sometimes it's worth it to try to get some psychological testing done to see if there has been some brain injury. We had a client for whom we were able to get document that he had some limited limitations in his ability to remember things, probably from the bilateral uh, head, head trauma blows that he had received. Uh, you don't usually have anything quite so clear as that, uh, and as the uh, Melanie pointed out earlier, it is important to uh, figure out how to explain why if they did pass over their their one-year deadline, why did it take so long after that before they finally filed? So that's another issue. Um, Forensic medical evaluators would like attorneys to know that an experienced medical evaluator can make a difference in outcome. There is a real difference between a one-shot deal and a comprehensive evaluation, including PTSD. I have seen one-shot deals which were uh, very accurate and they were very short and they didn't make move me one way or the other to um, make a judgment about this person. Um, Usually people who are in the work of doing this um, get have gotten trained in it. They have done refresher courses. They have enough volume to know the range of presentations that Um, tortured and uh, persecuted people have gone through. They may have familiarity, having done a lot of people from a given country with what the typical um, tortures might be and uh, whether the story actually adds up and is credible based on prior evaluations. Uh, Many of us are working with PHR and students, we are working with a student PHR group at UMass, setting up an asylum clinic to actually be able to train people and um, make these evaluations more comprehensive and available to more uh, clients. Um, I think it's also important to develop familiarity or willingness to become aware of specific practices pertaining to individual countries, uh, such as dictatorships, um, the countries with very homophobic cultures, sometimes these overlap, Um, Cultures supportive of physical and sexual domination over women and children, um, which are many, and female genital mutilation. So these are, these are all places, situations where it becomes helpful to know what the expectations are. So I wanted to, um, to show you some pictures, but they are not here. And so I need to find out where they went to. But that is the end of the talk that I have prepared. And I want to, I will find these pictures while you want to, if you want to start on the questions.
0: Dr. Lucy, Uh, and I'm sure we can share um, these uh, presentation as well with our participants at a later time. Uh, So now we have a few minutes for questions. If you would like to submit your questions right now, uh, we're going to start with final remarks, but in the meantime, feel free to send your questions and we'll address them as soon as we can.
2: Melanie, would you like uh, to share um, your final remarks? Um, I just wanted to see if anyone had any questions. I think everyone did a great job explaining why these evaluations are very important, how they fit into the process, and some of the issues that come up. Is
1: so my turn? Um, so Emma, I use too much um, time. So I just wanna emphasize how important it is to work closely with your experts. Sometimes our clients tell them things that they haven't told us. Sometimes we know things about the judges that they need to be aware of. Um, so it's just really important to communicate with them um, as closely as possible. And also don't forget to tell them what happened in the case. they work worked very hard on these and they really are doing this because they care. And sometimes it's easy to move on to the next case and not tell them Um, what the outcome was. And that's really important. And then I'm going to circulate after this presentation a really good resource called Expert Witnesses in U.S. Asylum Cases, a handbook. And it's by a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Law School. And it was published in 2018. And it's really an excellent resource, which we'll be circulating after. Um, Thank you. I just see in the chat,
2: there's a question. Does the proposed change Melanie discussed say whether it is going to apply retroactively to pending cases or only to newly filed applications? Um, My understanding thus far is this is applicable to people who will be coming now in expedited proceedings with credible fear interviews. It is proposing new definitions for some ways that people will qualify. So I'm assuming that if these um, regulations are published and then they might apply to existing cases once it gets to the interview or the um, individual hearing state. And, otherwise, and I think maybe the discretionary analysis factors will probably apply um, to the existing cases.
0: Thank you, Melanie. And we also have a question if we can have the presentation from Dr. Camby as well. I'm sure we can make those available.
4: I have the pictures up here, if people wanna see them. I don't know if this is the right time. I don't know how many more questions there are in the chat. Uh, We have one more question. Okay. And then of course we can see uh, your, you can
0: present your pictures. Uh, the question is how have you seen the pandemic has impacted asylum seekers access to evaluations and consent within the one time one year time frame
2: i muted myself i can answer that um i have been having some evaluations done for clients and they've all been on zoom right now um so i think i can't speak for people here, but that's been my experience.
1: My, my experience is that um, the psychological evaluators are starting to move towards Zoom, but the medical documentation is a lot harder to do, not in person, so those have been more of a challenge to arrange.
4: I've done one of uh, the history part with three separate visits on Zoom and I'm actually going to do an in-person physical evaluation tomorrow for a very limited part of the client's body um, with all kinds of protective equipment and so on. I also asked her attorney to get her COVID tested, which she was and she was negative. So that makes me feel more comfortable about have, taking her into a healthcare facility where I have access to an exam room um and i
3: have been doing um i have been doing zoom evaluations and um they're more challenging but they certainly can be done and in terms of helping the client's case as much as possible um you know i've been finding ways to make them work and just the second part of that question about the one year
1: deadline i have not seen that any policy that exceptions will be granted to the one year deadline based on COVID. I'm I'm hoping that might come in the future, but there's not been that yet.
0: Great, thank you so much. Dr. Lucy, if you would like to um, share your um,
4: presentation with us. Okay, Um, so, The mechanism of injury. This person was restrained from the ankle, suspended, and so you can see that they have a scar right where a strap would have been holding them up uh, or suspending them. Um, This person talked about having alligator clips put under both of his uh, big toenails. This person um, was struck with a baton on right over his forehead. That's a very typical linear scar from a blunt object. Um, He reported that he was accosted and raped by uh, a bunch of men um, and they held a knife to his back uh, while he was being raped. And here is the knife scar, which you can see. These are pretty typical cigarette burns um, with a keloid formation on them, which is typical for uh, people with pigmented skin, and um, this was part of this GLBT's experience, person's experience, uh, from a um, juju doctor in Nigeria trying to cure him of his uh, homosexuality. a, a mechanism of injury. Bullet wound went in and came out or actually went in and came out um, and uh, this guy was fleeing and they caught his, the bullet caught his elbow. I'm not going to show you all of these.
0: Dr. Lucy, if you don't mind sharing your screen, um, I, don't, I don't see everyone is able, I don't think everyone is able to see um, the photos.
4: Oh, I'm sorry. Can you see this one? Um, just verify. Are you seeing, you <laughs> haven't been seeing any of these? I'm sorry, you haven't seen any of these pictures? No, doctor, if you can. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, here here is the, are you seeing this one now? Two ankles? No, I don't, I don't think your screen is um, shared yet. Okay. How about now? That? No. No? Okay, well apparently the screen share function is, it's on and it's not working. You got it, it's working? Okay, so this is the ligature around the ankles This is the alligator clips under the toenails. This is the baton blow to the skull. This is the uh, knife, uh, knife mark where this person was being tortured and raped. Cigarette burns with keloid formation. Bullet wound in and out. Uh, Whipping injury, another whipping injury with a metal tip at the end, glass bottle, broken bottle, metal burns, rods, linear stuff in general is a bad scene. Uh, Restraint tattoos, this is where a person was person was um, restrained uh, for a long period of time and had these marks. And then it's the last one. This is um, a fellow who was um, being dumped off a truck in Uganda after he had been in prison and the guy on top of the truck struck him on top of the head with a hoe and then they left him there and he got picked up by a motorcyclist and brought to a hospital where they took this CT scan and this CT scan, which we all could uh, recognize is a fracture of the skull. You don't need an MD to do that. Um, I did ask a surgeon to... Uh, the, Chief of Trauma Surgery at UMass to write a letter saying that this injury is consistent with being hit over the head by a hoe. Um, I think that was helpful and he did get asylum. So that's the sort of documentation you can get and that the, the mechanism in of injury should match uh, or the findings to keep this to send the photo should match uh, the mechanism of injury. I'm sorry that it didn't uh, work out. It didn't project as well as I had hoped, but uh, thank you for being patient.
0: Thank you so much Dr. Lucy. Well thank you everyone for joining the program today. If you have further questions feel free to email us. Uh, in the presentation there is my email. We're part of the immigration section at the BBA. We're going to be presenting more programs so it your uh, opinion is very important to us. I'm going to um, ask Melanie, Dr. Janice, Lisa, and Dr. Lucy if you have any final remarks. We have